Hello and welcome to Connected episode 301. I had an internal debate if I was going to say 301 or 301. Do either of y'all have thoughts on that? 301, it sounds more professional. I thought so too. Yeah. 301 is a little casual. Because you could mean like 3.01, right? Like we could start numbering the show like developers number their releases now. It looks like a uh, like a web browser error, like three error three or one, like you know disconnected when, or something. When whatever <laughs> podcast it was hit episode four hundred and four for the first time, I was very nervous that it was going to break our CMS, but it it didn't. Yeah, I, we just hit it for the pen addict a few weeks ago, and I was terrified to publish that episode. Anyway, this is still the intro of a podcast. Yes. So welcome to Connected episode thirty point one. My name is Stephen Hackett. This. Uh, episode is sponsored by our sponsors because they sponsor things smile miro and pingdom it's an odd episode so mike you get to go first hi mike i would like to uh request that when you introduce me in the future that you introduce me as his excellency the royal keynote chairman (laughs) i'm not gonna do that (laughs) i have decided that my chairmanship is a royal chairmanship uh, as you will see from the at keynote chairman account which now features lots of crowns and decrees and i would like to be known as his excellency the royal keynote chairman mike hurley you don't have the lineage for a royal chairmanship sure i do no, it's not something that you can just come up and, and say. Yeah, you only got I it have, because I had it. You were my son. I have divine podcast right. That's what got me here. And so that, that's what I want. That's what, that's what I want. He wins a single thing and look yes. at what he's done to his head. Like, oh my God. His Excellency, the Royal Keynote Chairman, Mike Hurley. You know we're going to call you this for the next 12 months every single week. I will be thrilled to be known okay. as... Stephen, can you please redo the intro and actually call him? We're going to put Thank this you. in the document so he's going to be happy. I'll do it mm-hmm. next time. <laughs> we'll see. I'll just bring it up. Okay. So. Hi, Federico. Hey, Stephen. How are you? Hey. I'm a normal person, so I don't have any requests. I'm just happy to be here with you. And uh, what's his name? His Excellency the Royal Keynote Chairman Mike Hurley. Yeah. It's, a, it's an honor, sir. Thank you. Thank you. It's always nice to spend time with the subjects. Wow. <laughs> Keeps me grounded, you know? Wow. Wow. <laughs> we appreciate it. Thank you so much for You could lose this title anytime. They could have another keynote yeah. at any moment. Uh-huh. Just a heartbeat away mm-hmm. from retaining my crown, which I lost in a stupid coin flip. I'm retaining the crown. You would be regaining I don't know, a presidency or something. You don't have royalty there. Mm. Oh, we could. We're, we're sliding towards it. Okay. <laughs> Follow up. Follow up. Follow up. Federico, teach me everything you know about Xcode Preview. This is fun because I, uh, if you recall, <laughs> one of my one of my passion picks from the previous round of predictions was... No, it was your Ricky pick. Uh, yes, it was a Ricky pick, but it was made with passion. So it was a passion Ricky. Right, um, right, right, right. right. Yeah. Was that Apple was going to introduce a new development tool for iPad that was not Swift Playground. And of course, that did not happen. However, 
It was recently revealed, uh, we've seen in one of the sessions, and it was shared by Jordan Singer on Twitter, that Xcode 12, which is the new version of Xcode for macOS, does come with a new utility app called Xcode Previews that you can run on your iPhone, that you can run on your iPad, that allows you to have interactive on-device previews of your uh, SwiftUI views. So you can run these Xcode previews utility on your iPhone and your iPad. You're going to have a real-time uh, preview of SwiftUI. And you can, you know, it's better than just having a simulator. You can actually do it on device. And there's an actual icon called Xcode previews. It's, um, it's a new feature of Xcode. So it's, it is kind of close to having uh, a new development tool for iPad. Of course, it does not qualify for my Ricky pick because it does not let you write code on device. This is mm. a preview utility. Uh, so it is a developer, a developer tool, but it does not let you write your own code and test your own code on device. It's, a, it's an Xcode extension, essentially, that lets you preview your code. But that code still needs to be written on a Mac. So close, but, but not what I was actually predicting. It is cool, though. I could see this being really useful working in SwiftUI, not that I know about development. Well, what is your opinion on SwiftUI, Stephen? I think it's um, it's a UI idiom. It's, a, it's, it's declarative, right? It's de- Yeah, it declares itself it declares. to be Swift. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing we can all agree on is that SwiftUI is declarative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like, everyone can agree on that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, you know, when, when it comes to declarative, it's, yeah. It's like the most declarative UI, really. And again, we can all agree that that is good sure. for scaling across the platforms, it's good which, we, for, which we want. Sure. I mean, declarative is the way to go if you're going to have a, you know, a, a, an ecosystem, right? Of modern frameworks. Of modern frameworks. Yeah, deep and, and open. Yeah. You want to make sure that you're, like, you're writing code and you look at your code and you're like, is this declarative enough? And if not, you know, you got re- yeah. to reassess your <laughs> You your look setup. at the code and you're like, this isn't declaring anything. <laughs> and then you throw it away. Start is, again. You know, we should be developers. I'm I just saying. So. <laughs> we know. Uh, we know what we're talking about. Yeah, we do. We do. While we're in the lane of WWDC follow-up, Apple Design Awards were held this week. Not the week of WWDC. It's kind of, kind of weird, but I guess they could take all the time they want. Uh, John Voorhees, whoever that is, has an article over on Mac Stories about the winners. No Mac winners. All iOS. Some people are cranky about that, but I think uh, the apps here are all really pretty cool. It's a it's nice to see a lot of uh, iPad apps. I think in these years, uh, a word specifically called out. Uh, Darkroom, for example, Loom, which is a very, very fun and, and innovative animation utility for iPad. There's Shaper, which is, of course, it's the 3D modeling app. There's a StaffPad. I remember it being a big deal for like professional mus- musicians when it came on the iPad. I think StaffPad used to be on Windows before, and they were able to bring out an iPad version as well. And then, of course, there's the um, some Apple Arcade games. We're going to talk about Apple Arcade later, I think. But it's, uh, yeah, I think it's nice to see, especially with the on the productivity side, uh, Apple giving these awards to to iPad apps. It's a it's a good sign. Uh, I like it personally speaking, of course. Uh, the lack of Mac awards. Uh, we were actually talking about this in private in our group, uh, also with John Voorhees. Who? There's a real question of like, 
who would you give the award to on the Mac? Sure, there's stuff like Pixelmator Pro. Didn't really come out in 2020, though. It was more like of a 2019 thing, and it received a bunch of... I just searched because I was intrigued. There were no Mac winners last year either. So, there was a game that ran on the Mac, but it was an iPhone and iPad game that also ran on the Mac. So right. this isn't new. Uh, yeah, yeah, like the Apple Arcade ones run on the Mac, but they're not what I consider Mac apps, right? They're not cross-platformy things. Anyways. That's not to say that there are not n- no great apps on the Mac. It's just there's a lot <laughs> fewer than them, especially especially on the Mac App Store. In 2018, the app Agenda won for iOS and macOS, but let's be honest, it probably won for iOS. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm like trying to go back, like how far do I need to go back to find an app that was just a Mac app? Probably like uh, 87, 88, you know, the Lisa mm-hmm. apps were dying off. 2017, there were the only app that ran on the Mac, or two, actually, Things and Airmail 3, but they were also cross-platform, so honestly may have not even been considered for their Macness. Uh, man, you guys keep going, but I'm going to keep searching for this. So we'll do some real-time follow-up to our follow-up. Shortcuts got a lot of stuff. You know, it wasn't mentioned in the keynote, wasn't really mm-hmm. in the State of the Union, I don't think. But turns out there's a lot of cool stuff. Uh, we talked about some of it last week, but Federico, we, we wanted to point out one thing in particular here, right? I had no idea that this was actually uh, brought back, but it was first noticed by Simon Stovering, is the developer of Scriptable and Datajar on Twitter. He noticed that it is now possible again to import shortcuts as files. So if you used to be possible that you could export an individual shortcut as a dot shortcut file. And in previous versions of shortcuts before iOS 13, it was possible to basically create these local backups, these local copies of your shortcuts and delete them from the app. And then if you wanted to re-import one of those shortcuts, you could just use the file. And this feature was uh, removed last year in iOS 13 as part of the stricter uh, security measures in shortcuts. And a lot of people, including myself, um, criticized this decision of um, not allowing people to back up their own shortcuts as individual files offline, instead forcing everybody to use iCloud.com, which is a sharing method. It's not a backup method. Those are two different things. Now, in iOS 14, you can import your .shortcut files again. So very good news, especially if you, like me, have lots of shortcuts and you may be... uh, uh, maybe maybe you have like a shortcut that is kind of meta, but I have a shortcut that backs up all my shortcuts in a zip archive. And I run this reg- regularly. And in fact, I had so much faith that complaining about this stuff would actually work that I've been running this shortcut every month for the past year, even though it wasn't possible to import those shortcuts anymore because <laughs> I kept my faith. I'm a man of faith. I keep my faith in, in things that I feel strongly about. And my faith has been rewarded because now, well, not that I need to import my backup again, but I was right in, 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 in feeling that this feature would come back. And I think, generally speaking... It, it's, it feeds into this idea that Apple has been listening to powered users uh, regarding shortcuts for the past few months. In fact, in addition to powered user features like this one and the other features that we talked about last week, like copy and paste and folders, there's also some really interesting um, 
additions for developers who want to integrate with shortcuts and do something more than just use like a Siri shortcut to activate like a quick feature. Um, if you're a developer, you can now mark some of your actions in shortcuts as deprecated. Uh, this is quite common uh, for apps that uh, ship a specific shortcuts integration and then later the developer wants to do something else, but they are stuck with that old action. They cannot quite remove it because it would break a shortcut that maybe some people have created, but they want to introduce a new version of the same action. Well, now if you're a developer, you can say, this action is deprecated, uh, it'll break in a future version of my app. Uh, there's a new action, there's a new, a different action nice. that you can install in the meantime. So that's very nice. Mm -hmm. And I know the developers like Simon and like Greg Pierce of Drafts have been asking for this kind of functionality. And the second one, um, this was actually mentioned in one of the sessions. There's a new API for shortcuts um, developers. It's called in-app intent handling, which basically it means that if you're a developer and you have an intense um, integration, uh, intense-based integration, so intents are the technology that powers uh, the actions the developers can make for the shortcuts app, uh, now you can handle those intents inside of your own app in instead of running the intent in inside of the extension. Uh, basically, this means that you're not, like the end user, you're not going to noti notice anything. It's more of a technical change. But in practice, it means that a lot of actions are going to be a lot more powerful uh, with iOS 14. Because running an intent-based extension comes with its own limitations in terms of like APIs and frameworks that you can access. And now if you run the intent in-app, you will not have those limitations anymore. A good example of this would be, again, um, scriptable by Simon Storing um, previously with the old intense uh, framework, you couldn't use bookmarks, file bookmarks, created in scriptable in inside of shortcuts. And Simon tweeted, uh, again, a video showing how it was able to switch to the new in-app intent handling in iOS 14, and now shortcuts will be able to retrieve and use and access all of your file bookmarks that you created in scriptable because there's no extension in the middle anymore. So a lot of these limitations, I believe, will go away and will have a lot of actions that will be a lot more powerful than before. So again, these are very much like technical changes, but you know, if you're the kind of developer who really wants to integrate with shortcuts, you should be taking a look, a look at this stuff because it's uh, both of these, like being able to mark actions as deprecated and have uh, superior handling for your intents. I know developers like Simon, like Greg, have been asking for these features. Uh, also, Alex of Toolbox Pro, they've been asking for these features for the past 12 months. And it's very good to see that somebody on the Shortcuts team is still listening, even though they may not be as vocal about it on Twitter as before, but they're still listening. And really, for them, this in theory should be low priority stuff. Yeah, this, like, this is not like, uh, oh. This is the most power of power users that use these tools. Yeah. You've yeah. got Shortcuts power users, and then you have power user power users <laughs> who are using like scriptable and charty and... Yeah. You know, like that it's like a. And this is not to discredit those applications. They are fantastic, but they are, you know, they they really are for specific people, which is why they're priced that way as well as they should be. Like they're not cheap mm -hmm. applications for that for that reason. So, uh, by the way, two thousand and fifteen uh, again. 
was the last time that an app let me guess which one okay there were two two of them yeah one of them is capo incorrect oh no steven do you want to guess 2015 2015 2015. pixel or something wrong um reader wrong tot not not fantastic how to an affinity designer affinity oh yeah and they won explicitly for their mac apps so it's been five years since a standalone straight up mac app has won an apple design award so the fact that people seem surprised this year uh there you go don't be we have some very important follow-up mike i feel like as his royal highness you should share this with the people no, this isn't how it works because we don't have these kinds of documents. All right. We don't we don't we don't have these kinds of documents in in a royal uh institution. Right. So I think you should do it. So big news, Matthias over on Twitter has created for us a PDF that is the Bill of Rickies. This is incredible. I cannot believe that this happened so quickly. Now, I have a question. Was this in the main show? Or was it in the post show? Uh, I don't. I can't tell the difference. <laughs> okay. But yes, uh, basically, I as a joke, as most of the things I say, it was just like a quick joke of like, hey, imagine if if all the the rules behind our rickies and our predictions game that we do every year. Imagine if if it was like presented as like a physical manuscript that looked like the Bill of Rights or the Magna Carta. And somebody actually put this together. So, um, uh, as you can imagine, it looks like an old document with the with the handwriting. It's very well done. This it's font. very well done, and it begins yeah. saying, "What's the name of like when you when you start one of these documents and like the the first letter is like bigger than the rest of the text?" Drop cap. Maybe. Maybe it's that. Maybe it is that. No, not when it's bigger. When it also has that very specific. Yeah, like, it's, it's got this that is look. More. Yeah, it's yeah, Jason got, knows he was around when they wrote the Constitution. It's got that look. <laughs> oh, he was. Uh, anyway, it says we, the co-hosts of the Connected Podcast, in order to form a more perfect podcast, establish <laughs> justice, foster network tranquility. Boy, tranquility is such a good word. Promote the weird fish emoji. <laughs> uphold technology without. Orders and secure the blessing of Apple-related news to ourselves and our listeners, do ordain and establish this Bill of Rickies for the connected podcast of Relay FM. My word, this is perfect. This is beautiful. It's beautiful. And then it goes on to list all of the rules as they are currently. Uh, there is a space for us to sign this, and I think the three of us should all sign it. And set, we have to sign it and send it around to get real signatures. Mm, oh, that's that sounds like a project for me. Should we get this <laughs> notarized? Oh, like yeah. actually notarized? <laughs> yes, we should. If you are a listener who is a notary, <laughs> let us know if this is a crime. <laughs> is this is this legal? Like, can you actually notarize this stuff? I would genuinely would like it notarized. How do we do that? Do we have to get on a Zoom call? No, no, we're doing this wrong. You have to. We have to send this in person. So next time we do a live show, oh my, oh yes, yes, we'll sign it and have it notarized on stage. 
you got to make it big, like really like, big. Yeah. <laughs> that we will do. So we will find a notary who's willing to come on stage for a live podcast recording. I have another thing, and this should probably be added into the Bill of Rickies. Whoever wins <laughs> has to take it home and is their property <laughs> until the next winner wins. <laughs> and it then has to be sent to that person to wow. be looked after. Wow. Yes. Also, what are your guys' thoughts on having some kind of like medieval style announcer read out the Bill of Rickies before we declare the winner? Like a jester or like somebody. Well, that's a good. I mean, we always read the rules anyway. It could be like a, either a gesture or like like uh, like I don't know somebody and like there's like also trumpets. A town crier, like a town crier <laughs> with the bell. Yes. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. Is that another job for Jason? Town crier. <laughs> as long as they have to flip a coin, we're fine. <laughs> he can talk. <laughs> All right. So this is continuing to get more and more complicated. Okay. So I have a PDF a PDF of this in our Dropbox, and we'll we'll go from there. But mm-hmm. this is amazing. Thank you so much for this amazing work. Mm-hmm. We have some follow-out. I wanted to point people to Upgrade, episode 304, where Mike, you and Jason had a really cool interview. Yeah, we had the opportunity to interview uh, Bob Borchers and Ronak Shah, who work on Apple's uh, product marketing teams. And we spoke about macOS Big Sur and some of the new features in Safari. So if you want to check that out, I think it was a really great interview. It came out really well. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really pleased that we were able to get uh, Apple on the show. Uh, like, I guess, spoiler alert, like we're about to, after this break, right? We're going to have another interview, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about in a minute. Stephen, would you like to take a break and we'll introduce that? Let's take a break and then we'll introduce that. How does that sound? <laughs> great. <laughs> we're on the same page. <laughs> Federico, what do you think? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, why why not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This episode of Connected is brought to you by PDF Pen from our friends over at Smile. PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro is your ultimate PDF viewing and editing app for the Mac. You can add things like headers and footers along with watermarks to your documents. It also includes a precision editing tool, and you can OCR documents. And what's really cool, because this is tricky in PDFs, you can edit content in table cells. And PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro 12.1 have arrived with even more powerful features, including page label support and multiple formats for documents. And Pro users can go a step farther with the ability to add or edit page labels. These new features are in addition to the great features that were already available in PDF Pen 12, including a magnifier window to zoom in on a document, customizable compression settings, stationary with new paper colors for custom page designs, and more. PDF Pen 12 works with PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone, allowing seamless editing across devices when hooked up with Dropbox or iCloud. If you do work with PDFs, you need to check out PDF Pen. Go to smilesoftware.com slash podcast to learn more. Our thanks to PDF Pen and their support of this show and Relay FM. 
All right, so a few days ago, uh, we had the opportunity of sitting down with uh, Jenny Chen and Stephen Tonner from Apple. Stephen is from the product marketing team, and Jenny is an engineer who works on Apple Pencil software. Jenny was in the keynote showing off the new features for the Apple Pencil, which obviously I'm very excited about. Uh, so we're going to go to that interview now, and you're going to hear all about Apple Pencil and a lot of conversation about iPadOS as well. So for me, definitely, uh, both Scribble and the new handwriting and shape recognition features in uh, iPadOS and Pencil Kit are easily my favorite new features in the entire operating system. Um, so I really want to start talking with these first. So Jenny, do you imagine that these new features are going to make the Apple Pencil even more of a core part of iPad use for a lot of people? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think one of the really great parts about Apple Pencil and the iPad is A, the note-taking abilities that we had before, but now we're so much smarter with what you can do with it. Like, you know, we can recognize your handwriting. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to select without having to enter any modal type things. And then along with Scribble, it's like I can go from one to the other, never have to put it down. Yeah, I think I think that's totally right. And just to add a little bit more to that is... You know, one of the things we've heard for many years from our very passionate Apple Pencil users is, and I think you this is something that you you can only appreciate if you really are a, a passionate Apple Pencil user, is when you're using it, when you're in that flow of drawing or illustration or note-taking, putting it down can have that effect of breaking that flow. And you don't want to have to put it down to respond to an iMessage or do a quick search in maps for, you know, a dinner location or something like that. And so with Scribble, you don't have to put it away to do those kinds of things. And it keeps you in that pencil state of mind, which is tremendously helpful for people who love being in the flow of using Apple Pencil. And that's kind of the, I think that's really the spirit of bringing Scribble to iPad is keeping you in that flow while you're using Apple Pencil. So when I'm using the Apple Pencil, that's the mode that I'm in at that time. Like I have done things like having the little mini keyboard in the side and using the swipe to enter text on that. Um, so I am like so, so happy now about being able to just handwriting the text that I want. It's such a fantastic way of keeping me doing what I'm doing rather than thinking about having to switch to typing now. It's, it's a, it really kind of keeps the flow on the device that I love. Cool. I remember in college, we took this like, you know, user interface class and, you know, how efficient the user interface was always judged on, you know, how long does it take you to do a task? How many, you know, taps does it take? Or even in this case, you know, how, how long does it take me to flip out my keyboard to enter this modal state, you know, enter text again. And I think one of the nice parts about the pencil is that, you know, you just put it down, no taps, <laughs> quick and easy. So speaking of the flow of, of working on the iPad, something that I got from watching some of the sessions is this idea of you now have this multiplicity of inputs on iPad. So you have touch. Um, first and foremost, it's still a primary touch device. And you have a keyboard and you have the pointer and you have the pencil. And I was wondering, what are some of the challenges of making sure that all of these different inputs can work together so seamlessly on iPadOS? Yeah, so that's actually something that we spent a lot of time refining. I'm sure as you've played with Scribble, you'll notice like how the keyboard interacts with it. And so, you know, when you start scribbling, the keyboard doesn't start popping up. You stay in this, you know, scribble experience and there's that little 
palette that shows Go or any of the other quick actions that you may need without the keyboard, you know, popping up and getting in your face, even though you clearly aren't using it because you're scribbling. And even like with pointer interactions too, we've done a lot of special things for Scribble to make sure that you know where you're writing, but without it being super in your face. Do you expect that some users will end up in situations where maybe you're using a magic keyboard or an external keyboard and a pencil at the same time? Like, is it something that you see or that you get like requests from customers of, I want to so quickly switch between all these different inputs? Is that something that you get frequently? Yeah, Federico, absolutely. And I actually think that's one of the main reasons people buy an iPad is Mm. it has this incredible versatility of inputs. It's, you know, it's arguably the most versatile device we make at Apple. Um, And that's its superpower, right? So I can, you know, in without actually changing anything about the UI, and this is genuinely what I love about iPad is I can go from a device that's touch first, right? That is the center of gravity for us is touch first. Then I can put it in the magic keyboard and I can use the cursor. And then I can use Apple Pencil in that same and in that same flow. And I never once have to change the way the UI works, right? I don't go from some desktop mode to touch mode. The the OS just knows what I'm doing and adapts to that. And I think that is how we think about iPad. That's how our customers, that's what our customers love about iPad. And, um, and so, you know, we work really hard and the, and it's it, at, at, at the engineering level. And Jenny could probably talk more about this is it's really hard to make that seamless, but that's why we do what we do, right? We don't want the customer to have to have to worry about any of that. They should just be able to use the iPad with any input they want. And it seamlessly adapts to them. I've been playing with the handwriting recognition for a couple of days on my beloved iPad Mini. I'm trying to get all my friends into back into the iPad Mini Club. Hey, I'm back in the in the iPad Mini Club. I'm, I'm right there with yeah, you. Yeah, I know. It's really just my... <laughs> <laughs> if they keep talking about it, I'm going to end up doing it. I, it's like, I'm, I then I, but then I'll have three iPads in consistent use. I told you it's perfect for reading. The thing is you don't like to read. So that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I won't get you. <laughs> I've been incredibly impressed with not only the accuracy of the handwriting recognition, but the speed of it as well. Could you talk a little bit about how that's happening? Is it on device? Is it using machine learning? Like what's going on behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, we've obviously done a lot of work on the machine learning side. It's all on device. Uh, we've trained a lot of models with a huge amount of data. And then we have this on-device machine learning that we've made sure is super quick, super performant. We've actually done a lot of work this year because we have all of these super responsive handwriting type features that kind of require, you know, immediate feedback to make sure that everything is smooth and zippy. And then even from the user interface side, you know, there was also a lot of work done in terms of like tuning those animations to make sure they also feel, you know, reactive and zippy as well. And I think the other interesting point on this one is, there's no training of this system involved. You don't have to go through, you know, a give us your handwriting sample, you know, how, you know, write the quick brown fox, you know, seven mm-hmm. times or anything like that. We've really worked hard to make sure that this thing works amazing out of the box. Um, and the processing happens all in real time. So as you're taking notes, you can immediately go into data detectors. You can immediately start selecting text. 
And I think that's a real testament to the work that Jenny and the team have done on the the model training part and the A-series processors, right, in every iPad um, that our users have is they're incredibly fast, incredibly powerful, and we can do all of this in real time. Um, and it's when you bring that hardware and software integration together that really makes that experience incredibly seamless for, for the customers. Two things that I've been super impressed about in my testing so far is one, how the system doesn't care if I'm writing in like print or cursive or a mixture of both, which is what I do, which I was so surprised that it, it didn't care. But also I have quite bad handwriting. <laughs> doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and like, seriously, hats <laughs> off to that. Because like, this stuff is incredibly hard to do, especially as you say, with no training, like that is very impressive. Hey, Jenny, do you, you might also want to talk a little bit about how um, you guys worked really hard to make sure it works great in when you're writing, you know, not in a straight line and some of the considerations there. Because I think that's also there's some really great details that the team thought about here. Yeah, I mean, I think both are really great points. The fact that it recognizes most people's handwritings, even if maybe a human couldn't even read your handwriting, I think is really impressive. <laughs> and I think that's really a testament to like the amount of work that our machine learning team has done, right, in gathering the corpus of training model data so that when you do write on your device, you don't need to have, you know, trained it with your own handwriting already. It kind of already knows. And then in addition, like Steven said, you could write in a little spiral and it would still recognize it, which I think is also really impressive. And so we've also done a lot of work, hmm. you know, tracking your strokes as they go to see like what path you might have followed. And you can see that even when you smart select, right? You know, when you smart select, when you select normal text, it's very linear. But I think that's one of the awesome parts that we have with smart selection with your handwriting is that, you know, how often is my handwriting actually a straight line? <laughs> Probably never. It always has a slight <laughs> tilt. And, you know, maybe I'm feeling a little fun and want to write in a little spiral or like in a little wave. And I think that's one of the really cool parts about smart selection is that, you know, we can still know that you're writing in this wave and select it like that instead of being constrained to this really linear form. Yeah, I was really impressed with the the selection. So if you're handwriting in the notes app, for instance, and you can highlight it just like you can regular text that I may have entered with a keyboard. How does that highlighting work? Yeah, so it's actually powered by the same machine learning that Scribble uses. And so I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, of course, you should be able to select handwriting like this. It works with type text. Easy peasy, right? But it's there's so much machine learning happening under the hood. And then in addition, like, as I said before, one of those challenges is that text is just so linear versus your handwriting it could be diagrams and drawings, nonlinear text, random arrows pointing everywhere. And so that was like definitely one of the challenges of handling selection, smart selection in notes. So I was playing around with the with Scribble on iPadOS 14 on my iPad Pro. And something that I noticed is that I, so I tried to uh, handwrite in a, in a bunch of different text fields. And something that I noticed was that when I opened music and I went to, to search for something on Apple Music and I used Scribble in the search field, the placeholder text 
inside the search field disappeared. And so then I was watching a, sessions about, a session about this and, and I wanted to ask you, if I'm a third-party developer and I want to integrate and I want to offer support for Scribble in my text fields, are there any particular considerations that I should, that I should account for, such as, for example, in Apple Music, you got the placeholder text, but it disappears because it doesn't want to get in the way or, of your handwriting? Yeah, definitely. I think your music example is a perfect example of that. Other considerations are uh, if your text field moves. So search is actually a good example of this. So if you type in your Safari search bar, you know, with a normal keyboard, mm. you'll actually notice the search bar moves up as you type to, you know, give more room to surface the search results. But when you use a pencil, you actually don't want that, right? Because if you're writing and then all of a sudden the text the like search bar moves underneath your pencil. Like that's such a jarring experience, right? right? And so I think one of those principles that we really want third parties to adhere to is, you know, make sure that your text fields stay where they are when users write. Another consideration too is, you know, how big your text field is in the space. So if you'll open like messages, for example, you have a single line text field on the bottom, which you know, as you're typing feels pretty natural, but as you're writing can get a little awkward as your hand is, you know, hanging halfway mm -hmm. off the iPad <laughs> or as you like, you know, start entering a multi-line scenario. And so kind of adjusting your text field so that they feel the most natural that you can for writing. Um, I think one of the great parts that we actually also do for you that you don't have to do as a third-party app developer, but you can customize if you want is that you can be a little sloppy and write outside the box if you want. So even if I like start scribbling and, you know, my handwriting is too big for this tiny text field, you can still write outside the lines, you know, don't have to follow the lines like you did in elementary school and we'll still know what text box you meant to write in. Yeah. And, and to add a little bit more to that, Federico, since you brought it up, the other thing the team worked incredibly hard on is making sure that the vast majority of third-party apps don't actually have to do any adoption to get Scribble. Right, that was my follow-up. So oh, good. You. <laughs> it's, it's, you and I are on the same wavelength, which is, uh, which, is, which is no surprise at all. Yeah, so this is something that as we were looking at Scribble internally, um, we wanted to make sure that Adoption was only necessary in the places where we might not be able to do that at the at the system level. Uh, maybe there's something highly custom in the app, but I think you'll find that the overwhelming majority of apps will just work with Scribble. And I right. think that is, and that includes apps that use web views in their apps and native, obviously UI um, text fields. And I think this is part of really bringing Scribble to life is it just works and you'll find that. And, and I think that's what users will expect, right? When you think about it, you don't think if a keyboard's going to come up when you tap into a text field, and Scribble should work exactly the same way, and it does. I am also, as well, a big pen and paper nerd. But one of the things that I love about when you can intersect these analog and digital tools is how they can assist you in places that you would otherwise be lost in. And smart shapes and data detectors are really good examples of that because I can still get the feeling of drawing myself or writing down something, taking a note myself, but still get to take advantage of what a computer can do for me. And I thought that that was such a beautiful way of bridging the gaps between those two things. Does that type of stuff ever drive your thinking about trying to find ways to bridge those experiences for people? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the principles that we have with Apple Pencil is we really want to make it, you know, just as easy as picking up a normal pencil and paper, right? I put my pencil down, I'm making marks, really easy. 
And like you said, I think, at least for me too, there's something really memory enforcing about writing something down. Yeah. (laughs) And so I take notes aggressively just so that I can help absorb that information. Another one of those things that we think about is how can we make it as smooth and easy as possible? But then what can we also provide you that makes it even better? Like, why would I reach for an iPad over a pencil and paper, right? And I think these smart features really help build on that a lot so that it's not just the thing you wrote and, you know, help you absorb this information, but also you can take action on it. You can do things to it later. You can, you know, I think one of the great parts is like, oh, I needed to insert this whole extra paragraph because I forgot to write it in. And instead of, you know, drawing those really long arrows and trying to fit things in the margins, <laughs> I can just like move everything and everything still looks really nice. Things like search, right? Paper, you can't search your handwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think Jenny's spot on. We we want to provide that friction-free experience you get with paper, but then take it to a whole new place. Um, you know, even scanning documents in, right? Um, you scan a document in and you can search that document now in notes. And so that's... Um, yeah, we, we, we're really excited about this kind of whole new way to work with on iPad. Yeah, I was actually, you know, taking notes the other day and then someone was wrote a website and I was like, oh, I really want that website and I'd handwritten it. And then I was able to like go to the website afterwards and I was like, well, this is so useful. <laughs> when the Apple Pencil came around the first time when we first had it, it was really focused on being a creative tool and an artistic tool and that was like a really fantastic purpose for it but now it's it really feels like these features are helping it become the meeting tool the note-taking tool that many people i think do use the apple pencil for but these new features really help make that a much much better experience which i think is is really amazing yeah 100 percent agree um it's it's been really fun to watch uh apple pencil grow Right. Um, and I think the principles of it, what's great is they've they've remained the same. We want low latency, right? Versatility. Um, all of those things have helped um, make it give you that feeling of paper. And I think the other key part of this is, and, and we talked about this last year at WWDC, where we were able to reduce the latency in software. And I think that's one of the incredible parts about Apple Pencil is, is that we can continue to improve it both from the hardware and the software perspective. That's what's been helping it grow and grow and grow into this really incredible way um, uh, to, to input on iPad. Yeah, to add to Stephen's point too, I think iPad itself has seen this transformation from this like creative device to this productivity device as well. You know, I can do so much more on my iPad and then all these pencil features just help you be more productive as well. So, Stephen, I'd like to dig in a bit deeper on iPadOS 14 in general, uh, if you don't mind. (laughs) Believe it or not, Federico has some questions. (laughs) Exactly. exactly. (laughs) Look, look, I have a long list and, you know, I I had to cut it down. So it's bear with me. Just just a few questions. Um, (laughs) So. I guess the, the, the first one that comes to mind is the home screen, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and on iPadOS 14, we have these new widgets, uh, this, this new widget kit framework for developers, and these widgets that can be glanceable, can be relevant. And of course, you've provided some default widgets. Uh, you, we can try it now with Apple Music and Notes and Reminders, and they look fantastic. Now, on the iPhone, 
the home screen allows you to intermix these widgets with the with app icons, and so you can have these like very custom layouts with widgets of multiple sizes, and then you can have the icons flow around them. On the iPad in iPadOS 14, however, the widgets are still placed in the left column. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little on on what what was the reasoning behind this difference between the two home screen experiences. Absolutely. Glad you asked about that. Before I jump into that, um, I do think, and I, I, I think it's worth kind of noting that aside from their the difference in where you can place them, the widgets themselves are are identical in terms of capability. Right. So the design, the size, the smarts, which we can talk about as well if you'd like, um, are, are, are all the same, which is great. So it really gives you that nice, consistent experience. Um, the short answer is um, that this year we we really decided to focus the iOS experience on intermixing on the home screen. As you know very well, last year, we added the ability to pin widgets to um, pin or pin the Today View, as it were, right. next to your apps on iPad. And and we really felt this year that that was the right placement for them because you can have them right there with your apps on iPad. The larger screen on iPad also lends itself better to that so you can get more content on the screen. Whereas on iPhone, if you want that experience, you know, prior to iOS 14, you had to swipe over to Today View, which you can still do. But putting them on the home screen gave iPhone users that same immediate benefit of accessing the widgets from the home screen. And so that was why we decided to kind of keep those separate. The other feature that is also only on the iPhone for now, I believe, is the app library. So you have this new mm -hmm. method of organizing apps automatically for you in different categories. And you have also intelligence there because you have suggestions and you have recently added, um, but that's only on the iPhone. And now this is my personal theory, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but between the widgets and the app library, I feel like the app library makes more sense on the iPhone, like personally speaking. And that's also part of, of something that I heard in one of the sessions of that the average person goes back to the home screen over 90 times a day. And that to me feels like an iPhone thing. It feels like an iPhone interaction, like you pick it up and you navigate back and forth between apps and the home screen. If that's the line of reasoning, I guess it makes sense to have the app library on the iPhone because it's the kind of uh, organizational tool that speeds up these interactions between apps on the home screen. Yeah, I think, you know, that that could certainly be part of it for for a lot of people. I think the other kind of thing to, you know, to keep in mind too is on iPad, again, and I'll, and I'll I think that's worth kind of continuing to sort of beat this drum of we have a large screen. You can have more apps right. per page and as you know Federico, but I'll but I'll I'll say it for, you know, posterity, we've got the dock. And I think on iPad, the dock is something that you can load up with lots of apps. You can access it over apps. So it becomes that additional way of switching between apps. And as well, if you have a hardware keyboard on iPad, you can command space and launch apps that way. And I think this does come back to, to, a, to a higher level point, which is, you know, we really do think about these experiences independently, right? How can we create the right experience for iPad? How can we create the right experience for iPhone? And then of course, share those technologies where, where it makes sense for users, but also acknowledge that people use devices in different ways, their screens are different sizes. And so, um, and that's what drives all of our software design and, um, and software development. You know, that's why you see this really great distinct experience on iPad. While we're talking about uh, iPad design, uh, a phrase that's kind of been used in some of the sessions is designed for the iPad or the iPad idiom. And I wanted to know how you think about that. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of consistency, like you just said, between the phone and the iPad, but now there's also consistency between iPad OS and 
Mac OS. So kind of how do you feel, how do you think about those things and where does the iPad sort of fit into that spectrum? Absolutely. Great question. Kind of stepping back just a little bit. I think when we think about those three categories of devices as core, and of course, all the other devices we make like Apple watch, et cetera, the, the Uber driving force for us is to deliver the right experience for the right device. I think that is, you know, that's how we think about these things. And, and as I mentioned before, and figuring out how they are consistent and how do they work well together? Because a lot of our users have all those devices, right? And so they should work really well together. Then as we think about iPad, um, what drives us there is how can we make really efficient use of that large screen to help people get more done faster? And I think a great example of that is, and we, we talked about this a little bit earlier before we got started, which was the addition of sidebars really does speed up that experience because what you end up with is you end up with apps that are able to put all of their core functionality right in the main window. So instead of tapping on something and having another panel open or um, or shifting to another place, you can just tap, tap, tap like in photos or music and the content updates on the right-hand side. That's a really powerful and efficient way to work on an iPad. The other nice thing about the sidebars is they support drag and drop and spring loading as you saw in the demo. So you can pick things up and move them around really naturally and fluidly. And that's an efficiency that we, and that's kind of what drives our thinking, which is how can we let users get more done on this beautiful, large multi-touch display. And then the other benefit there, as you alluded to on the Mac side is, any developers that wanna bring those apps over to the Mac via Mac Catalyst, those all of those features translate beautifully to the Mac. So you'll get those great sidebars on the Mac, um, et cetera, pull-down menus. Um, and I think that's that's another way to kind of really help the ecosystem out. What, one other, couple other points I wanted to, to drop in there too while, while we're talking about design for iPad elements is, um, you know, we not only went with sidebars, but we went really deep into the experience. So pull down menus, which are incredibly um, efficient. We have a new date picker. So, you know, the, um, the kind of slot machine style date picker yeah. on iPad, <laughs> that is now a mini calendar where you can type in. Which, which I... Love that so much. I'm so happy Isn't it about awesome? that. Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> I didn't realize that I didn't want the kind of wheel anymore uh, until I started using the trackpad. Right. And then I was like, mm, I have a trackpad and keyboard. I want to type now or tap now. Right. That That is really wonderful. Ask and you <laughs> shall receive. Uh, and, 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 and then the other one is, um, and Jenny um, can talk even deeper about this. We now have a system-wide color picker with an eyedropper, just like you would expect. And so that will help developers implement this. And, and the overarching idea here is that we can generalize these tools. Developers can easily integrate them into their apps, including things like Pencil with Pencil Kit. And our users get this incredibly consistent experience across apps. Um, which is which is just a which is just a great way for them to deliver uh, to deliver great apps across all our platforms. While we're here, I'd like to hear a little bit uh, about the color picker again. Something that's been on the Mac for ages now, showing up elsewhere. What considerations went into that? Yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, we kind of take it for granted on the Mac, right? You know, it's this easy to use thing. I can pick colors really easily on the Mac, but at least for on iOS and iPad OS. You know, if you wanted a color picker, you had to implement all of that yourself. And, you know, there are lots of different ways to pick colors. There's the grid of colors, there's the spectrum, then you have color spaces and opacity. 
And all of it is a lot of work to implement as a third party developer and even as a user, right? You know, getting used to different applications, color pickers is kind of a different experience. And so it's really great that we were able to unify this all together so that you don't have to do all this work if you want to just, you know, be able to change colors of like, you know, text or drawings in your app. Something that um, that really stood out to me as soon as I installed iPadOS 14 was um, I look at these sidebars and I look at these pull down menus and I look at search and a lot of it felt instantly familiar as somebody who's seen those elements on macOS. But at the same time, they also felt like they didn't feel, feel they didn't feel like additions to the iPad that didn't make sense for the platform. And I feel like you've you, you struck a really good balance in bringing over these features that maybe are inspired from work that you've done previously on macOS, but they also, they were adapted to the iPad and they make sense for the platform. And search really stands out to me there as you have this, now you have this floating search bar in the middle of the screen that doesn't hide what you're doing underneath. Can you elaborate on this sort of bringing over these elements from the Mac, but while also rethinking their design and their functionality for iPadOS? You know, one of the really unique advantages we have at Apple is we make the world's best phones, the world's best tablets, and the world's best computers. And while we and we can keep those distinct and we can share features across them. And as you note, when we share features, we don't just bring them over to one device or another. We really do think deeply about how can we take those elements and make them feel kind of exactly as you said, Federico, considered for that device. And there are some cases where we don't think it's right to bring things over to one platform or the other, um, or maybe sometimes we reimagine them completely. Um, I, I think you're right. Search is one of those ones that feels instantly familiar. It's the same keyboard shortcut that you're familiar with on the Mac. It does. There's kind of some nice fun treatments in there where if you look up an app and you want to open up that app in split view, you can actually drag it out of the search field and draw uh, over to the side. And that's just a quick way to get into multitasking. Um, and so we really do think about how do we bring these to the platforms and make them feel natural um, on that platform? How do we make them work great with touch, right? We always come back to this idea, iPad is a touch first device. Um, I like to say when you use iPad in its purest form, it's a sheet of glass you hold in your hand and you should be able to do everything with touch. Um, and then as we layer on other ways to input, like the trackpad and the pencil, those just make the experience better, but everything works with touch, you know, pull down menus, touch and hold and drag down work fantastic. Of course, if you click on one of those with the new trackpad works great too. So, um, so we really do think about all of the details there. Um, and I think the result is, is that, um, that really shows through in the experience. And speaking of those menus, um, they they feel like an evolution of the context menus that you launched last year in iOS 13. And it kind of feels like they have taken over the entire OS because in a, in a bunch of different places, like I was having a phone, a phone call with my mom a couple of days ago and I wanted to switch from the iPhone speaker to, the, to, the, uh, to one of my HomePods. And when I press on the speaker icon... Uh, I got a pull-down menu I, that felt like it. So if it does feel like these context menus uh, have sort of taken over. And maybe it's because they, as you mentioned, they, they transition so beautifully from touch input to pointer input. Was that the reason uh, why a lot of menus are now those kinds of pull-down menus? 
Yeah, and also there's that, and they're just really an efficient way to pack a lot of functionality into a single location. And I think that, you know, if we've learned hmm. something, you know, from the from our years on the Mac is context menus can be a great way to give users a lot of functionality right where they need it, right? You don't have to go up to a menu at the top. You can get it immediately in place. Um, and, and, and as you probably have noticed, what's, what I love about the iPad context menus is they grow the animation of, they grow right out of where your finger is, which gives you that really, that beautiful direct manipulation feeling, um, whether you're right clicking on the trackpad or you're touching and holding. And so I think that really is the spirit of this is they're fast, they're efficient, um, and they're exactly where you, um, expect them to be. Um, and they just, the context, the, the, the context menus just turned out absolutely beautiful. And on iPhone, you'll notice the new, um, the new menus have a haptic as you move your finger up and down, which is cool. So it gives you that feedback of hmm. where you are. Um, and so, yeah, we, we love these. We think they're a great design element for, for apps. There's a lot of stuff going on, uh, in, in iPadOS and which is really great to see, like we were already hoping that the introduction of this new platform last year would continue to bring more evolution year over year, which it definitely has. From a developer's perspective, like we have a lot of developers that listen to this show, how would you describe what a great iPad app in 2020 will be following iPadOS 14? What areas do you think developers should be really putting focus on when it comes to making the best iPad experience? Yeah, that's a gr great question. You know, I think what we look for in a great iPad app is a um, few things. Number one, really consider that large screen. Um, there is so much you can do on this large screen on iPad um, with three column views um, and, you know, more information in the main window. Um, I think that is just when, when you really kind of consider this screen the app experience can be extremely distinct. That's number one. Number two is I think, you know, of course we want all of our developers to consider, um, you know, ha implementing size classes so that the app works great when you're in split view and slide over and all of those elements, which is, which is what our iPad customers are now coming to expect, which is they can use the app full screen. They can use the app and slide over. They can split it. Um, Multi-window, right? That's becoming another part of being a modern iPad app. And what I love about when you build a modern iPad app, you don't have to worry about implementing other things like trackpad support because that just comes along, right? It, it, it turns out that if you build a great app for touch on iPad, it'll just work great with the cursor, period, right? Um, and so I think that is that part of it users will come to expect. And then I think as, actually as we come back around to Pencil, um, that's another area that that Jenny and team and she can talk more about pencil kit because I I think pencil kit is another thing that users are going to come you know in 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 some context come to expect that pencil will work great in apps and pencil kit is an awesome and easy way for our developers to add that capability to their apps. Yeah, I think one of those things to add to Stephen's point is you know building your own pencil experience before used to be kind of a lot of effort. And one of the great parts about Pencil Kit is that we make it really easy. You can just, you know, I think we advertised in our talk last year that it requires only five lines of code and you can get a pencil experience in your app. And so I think that's part of the, one of the really big parts about making your app more friendly, not only just this, you know, being really friendly with multi-window sizing appropriately, but also, you know, helping support all these inputs that users might want to use to interact with your application in an easier way. 
Yeah, I think I can speak for all of us when we say like we're super excited about iPadOS this year um, and can't wait to spend much more time with it. And then as the, the year goes on, seeing developers uh, integrate and, and use all these new tools is going to be amazing. So we want to thank you both for, for taking the time to talk to us today and to, to share all of this with our listeners. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you guys. This was, this was a lot of fun. We always love talking about this stuff. So thanks for carving out some of your time in your day to talk to us. So that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed this interview. It was really cool. Yeah, I was really happy for the time. Uh, I had lots of questions, obviously, about the Apple Pencil stuff, because as I've said, and I've, I'll keep saying it, uh, it's my favorite feature of, uh, of iPadOS right now. So like, I'm super into it. And I was really happy with um, the information that we got from Stephen and Jenny. So I want to thank them and everybody at Apple who made that possible for us. We've got some more stuff to talk about. Uh, up next, we're going to spend some time in the Apple Arcade mines. But first, let me tell you about our second sponsor. This episode of Connected is brought to you by Miro. Miro is an online whiteboard that brings teams together. Their infinite canvas is perfect for brainstorming, making mock-ups, organizing files, and managing complex projects. They even have a useful library of templates to help you get started more quickly. And you can host meetings in the same frame as your collaborative whiteboard, which is super handy because it means you can discuss your items as you go. Whiteboarding is a super useful tool in meetings. You can take notes freeform, and I often feel sort of constrained by something like a Google Docs or you know, Google Sheets or something. And Miro and, and whiteboarding in general lets you think and work through problems as it comes. And I find that really refreshing and freeing. Miro has over 5 million users. 80% of the Fortune 100 companies use Miro. That is really impressive. And Miro can integrate with the programs you're already using, like Google Drive, Dropbox, Slack, and more. So start collaborating for free when you sign up for an account at Miro.com connected. That's M-I-R-O dot com connected to sign up for a free account with unlimited team members. Go there now to check it out. Miro.com connected. Our thanks to Mirror for their support of the show and Relay FM. All right. So a few weeks ago, uh, we spoke about Apple Arcade a little bit on the show because uh, Federico canceled his Apple Arcade subscription um, and spoke a little bit about being unsatisfied with the overall kind of crop of games. Uh, so is Apple because there's been a strategy change for Apple Arcade, as reported by Jason Schreier from Bloomberg. Uh, this was Jason Schreier's first piece for Bloomberg, right? I think. Uh, working with Mark Gurman. Uh, Jason was at Kotaku. Is that right, Federico? Yes, he, he used to be at Kotaku, yeah. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm actually really intrigued to see what Jason will bring to Bloomberg as somebody who's been in the games industry for such a long time. Uh, but the two of them worked together on this piece that there's been a strategy change. Apple wants to see better engagement and retention for the games in Apple Arcade. They have been cancelling some contracts um, and looking for uh, new places for games that can fit this new strategy. Um, apparently, So the contracts that have been made with developers for upcoming games. Apparently, Apple paid developers based on, quote, un- achieved milestones that have been hit and also told them that they would work with these companies again if they were willing to make the types of games that they were now looking for, uh, which is, quote from the article, Apple is increasingly interested in titles that will keep users hooked so subscribers stay beyond the free trial of the service. So I wanted to just preface this by saying 
I am not diametrically opposed to this approach that Apple now wants to take. I agree with everything I'm sure Federico will say in the opposite to this, although I will also preface this by saying Federico was clearly unhappy with the games that were in Apple Arcade already. Um, But the way that I look at what Apple is trying to do here now is to make in-app purchase games without purchase, like IAP without P is how I'm thinking of it, like that they will want to now be funding and publishing the types of games that will keep people hooked. So there was a hope and there are people that say that they wanted Apple to like change the quality of mobile gaming. But I would say for myself, the games that have been on Apple Arcade that are like that, that are either A, trying to be a console experience or games that are better with a controller on any platform, you know, like games that are platformer games that I think tend not to work very well with uh, on-screen controls for myself. I don't want to play those types of games on my iOS devices or my Apple TV. I will play those types of experiences on a games console. I want games that feel like mobile games on my phone. So the games that I have liked the most from Apple Arcade, games like Grindstone, Round Guard, What the Golf, they feel like mobile games and mobile experiences. But there were these games, it was like that under the sea game, right? And like, uh, and I know people love this game, but it's not for me, like Oceanhorn, like I'll just play Zelda. Um, like I will, if I want kind of big titles, I will play them on a console where they can be bigger for whatever reason. Um, like the games that I have liked could easily fit into the like free to start world, like the in-app purchase world that you can imagine that like very easily. In fact, Apple have been citing Grindstone as an example of what they think is a successful title for them going forward when talking to developers. And you can imagine a game like Grindstone very easily within app purchase parts of like, oh, you've lost a level a bunch of times, pay or wait two hours before you can play again, right? You can imagine that mechanic fitting very well into that. And a lot of Apple Arcade's original launch titles, you could feel that they were clearly games that were designed around having in-app purchase in them and that was removed, right? Like there were games where like the Frogger game had like different outfits. It's like, why would you do that? Like, because you wanted people to pay for them probably. Um, So... Like for me, I think games that work on the app store that are built to make people engage with them, even though they at times use questionable tactics, they do give people a level of enjoyment. Like people enjoy playing those games. So if you can still give people that enjoyment or that dopamine hit without at the same time gouging them for $50 gems... I would ask, is that such a bad thing? It's not a bad thing, per se. I think it it makes a lot of sense, right? I just think it's kind of sad when you consider how Apple Arcade was pitched and presented, and when you consider the technological advancements that Apple is bringing to gaming on iPad, I just think it's said that one that that Apple Arcade is changing in a way where the only metric that matters is retention. And of course, I mean, it's a service, right? And of course Apple wants to make sure that that people are using the service and continuing to pay for the service. However, what makes me sad 
to hear this, to read this report is the the fact that Apple is shutting down other ideas because they're not addictive enough, because they're not that kind of game that that uh, that you know makes you hooked and and mm. pushes you to keep playing. Because when Apple Arcade was, here's why. Uh, for me, this is kind of a letdown. When Apple Arcade was pres- presented, it offered this unique vision of a mix of the games that you just covered, those arcade games without inner purchases, combined. That was the that was the thing for me because those games were combined with other kinds of games, like those games with a vision, games that had a story to tell, games that had a particular mechanic that wouldn't make sense on consoles. And I'm talking about things like Where Cards Fall, um, Skate City, um, Mutazione, uh, Over the Alps, Neocab, all these games that, some of them eventually also came out on consoles, but games that, you know, by all metrics, they wouldn't be considered addictive games. They are, and of course, Beyond the Steel Sky, which was were one of the uh, original uh, announcements, and then it just launched. It, it finally came out last week, which is mm. you know kind of weird timing considering this. Uh, you know, story, these story-based games or games that are like a particular angle, a particular artistic vision, and the promise of Apple Arcade was five dollars a month your one-stop place for gaming on the App Store. And you're going to find all kinds of games. We're going to fund games that are easy to play. So puzzle games, platformers, multiplayer games, uh, sports games, family games. But you're also going to find these more sophisticated experiences. Maybe that's a good way to describe it. Sophisticated experiences, these more artistic, indie games, you know. And to hear that in the end according to this article again this is just rumors but you know Jason knows what he's writing about when he writes about video games in the end it just resolves itself as well yeah we tried but they were not addictive enough so sorry we're gonna pay you for your milestones but we're not gonna find any more games and by the way if you're looking for for a game to make for Apple Arcade look at this one look at this <laughs> puzzle this game. game I mean it's make an amazing it. game yeah. but to actually go out and say well we're actually looking for more of this please and thank you like that's I don't know it's, it, it just makes me kind of sad you know because that was such a good promise such a good angle to say it's a subscription, and you're going to find all kinds of experiences. And of course, some of them are not addictive. In a way that going to, you know, going to a museum is not addictive as, like, watching, you know, reality television could be. Like, those are different kinds of experiences. And in life, it's, you know, we have different kinds of experiences. And so, in Apple Arcade, you could find the puzzle game, you know, the quip. Uh, like what's a, what's the name of those games like um Mike you know infinite like uh, infinite clickers like what's the name yeah uh, you can get like the clicker games there are like match 3 games which grindstone is super easy games that are perfect for mobile and i'm not criticizing those games because there's a place for those but also there was a place for other types of stories and other types of games and now it looks like it, there won't be anymore because they're, you know, the retention for those is not good enough. So it makes me sad because it's, I just find it, artistically speaking, kind of sad that a company is shutting down potentially really good ideas, especially now that, 
you know, with iOS and iPadOS 14, we're going to have even deeper support for controllers and even, you know, mouse and, and trackpad and keyboard support for gaming on iPad. Now, those developers, you know, they will not be funded by Apple. They If they will want to make their game on the App Store, they will going to have to go to the traditional route, like set it for a price on the App Store. Or get a publisher. Or a get a publisher, one. right. So, you know... Right, but like I will just say, like just you, these games already existed, and you weren't interested in them, right? So, like Apple's current crop, which include these games that you think are really awesome, like that was not enough to get you to keep your subscription, and so, and I think that's because kind they, of, they because they wouldn't come out anymore because right, <laughs> like Beyond the Seal Sky came out last right, week, right? But we we both had the point of like saying there's a backlog of games that we just never got to, so like the. The content was there, but but like I think it's just not grabbed either of us. And I speaking for myself, the only games that I have really truly enjoyed, I think are the types of games that Apple would still fund, honestly. Like all those ones that I mentioned, like What the Golf and uh I really enjoyed Grindstone and uh like those types of games, I think that they fit with the type of stuff that they're talking about. Like so I I get the point that you're making, but I think if I was going to continue to offer counterpoints, which I will, like if people aren't playing them, you know, it's a business. Like it's not a charity. Like the, 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 the point that you made about like comparing it to museums, I like that point, but people weren't playing these games or Apple would not be making this move. And it's not like that. They didn't try, like they made a tab in the app store for these and to put a ton of marketing behind it like i don't know how much more they could have done to try and get these games in front of people and it hasn't worked i don't know it, some things take time and i just think you know it hasn't even been a year and mm. uh, now they're already pulling the plug on those because you know the numbers were not good enough i don't know maybe you know maybe it's, um, um look it could be right like they might come back to it. Maybe but right this is now, an, ideal, an idealistic vision of we're just going to keep funding them because it's good for the art of it. And I get it. Like, maybe it doesn't make sense. Okay, so this part of Apple, they're not doing things for art right now, you know? like No art would exist. No art would exist if you looked at numbers. Like, sometimes... I don't know. You can make the same argument for music, right? But then again, Apple doesn't run a music studio, so... You know, you, you can be a musician and musician and put out music, even though like very few people are gonna listen to it. But you just do mm -hmm. it because it's right. Mm -hmm. And now I get it. Apple is in a in a very weird spot because they're not the the promoters of art necessarily. They actually fund it. They spend money on it. So and they I get they it. need to sell these subscriptions. Like this is the growth part of their business is selling these subscriptions. Now, like you know, I I think maybe. Maybe Apple Arcade is feeling the crunch more than Apple TV Plus is, right? Because, like, they're both suffering from the same problem, which is neither TV Plus or Arcade has had a runaway success, right? Um, but, so, like, you know, but the, the, we haven't seen stories of Apple TV Plus shows not being renewed. So Apple Arcade is kind of feeling the brunt of this maybe a little bit more, or maybe the situation is much worse. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I just feel like having variety is always good. Maybe Apple is a lot more strict about this than 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 I thought they were. They were. Not. I mean, look, there is so, also the thing that you must always consider, right? Is that the the people who have told this story are the people that have had this told to them. Right. Right. So, yeah, of course. There could still be a selection of games, which are the games that you want to see coming to Apple Arcade. But maybe maybe fewer of them. Yeah. But maybe fewer of them. I can understand that. That would actually make sense instead of just saying. Yeah. Like saying, like, no, we're not going to do this, but like less of these. And what we need is more games to drive the user base and keep people want. Because, like, the the lot of the games that they have spoken about, like the ones that you've mentioned, like Beyond a Steel Sky, you complete it and you're done with it. Now that's not a subscription service, right? Like you need to have bingeable content, good like this is like the Netflix model, right? Bingeable content, great back catalog content that people want to keep coming back to. So like you need like these almost like IAP games to get people really in on the system that can have this like base of games that are considered good that you can play infinitely and then also have these narrative games to sit alongside it. And I don't think they found that balance yet. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe what they're retooling to do. Like I do not deny that there are people that have been told exactly what they have been told. We can't say for sure right now that this is the case for every developer of every game at Apple Arcade. Yeah, yeah I get it. Makes sense. Like, okay, so Annapurna Interactive, who published uh, Sayonara Wild Hearts, they obviously loved that game and it did well for them because they gave it a design award. So if they want to make Sayonara Wild Heart 2, I bet Apple will fund that. Right, I hope so. You would expect so, right? Like, they liked it enough to award it. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's difficult. This story doesn't doesn't sit well with me because it, 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 hmm, it reaches to this bigger idea that, is, that I really dislike of creating anything art-related or content-related based on numbers. Like because if if I if I live my life like that, I wouldn't publish the articles that I publish because you know some of them I'm really happy with and they don't do really well. All three of us here have podcast projects that we do, yeah, that make no money but we do them for fun. Yeah. So this idea having uh, having to to consider this for for games on Apple Arcade, something that I was so excited about, like the principle of it makes me kind of sad. But I want to believe that maybe this happened and there's going to be a shift, but maybe Apple will be able to find that balance of, yeah, we're going to have, you know, more of those like types of games like Grindstone, um, like stuff like Sonic Racing, you know, this kind of stuff that is very consumer ready. And we're going to continue investing on some of these deeper and like more unique, unique experiences, but fewer of those. But even if that is the way it goes, which is definitely our own manufactured best case scenario, because yes. that's not what this report says, no. um, that is still keeping true to the report, which is saying that there has been a change in strategy because there are games that they were funding that they are no longer funding for these reasons. So there is a change, uh, and I guess we'll just have to hope that there'll still be a balance in the future. 
Steven, do you like games? They're fine. Good. <laughs> They're fine. This episode of Connected is also brought to you by Pingdom. While you've been listening to this podcast, how would you know if your website had gone down? How would you know if customers couldn't click that buy now button or access your content? You could stumble across the problem by luck. You may get a tweet or something about it, but that's not good because you need a system for these sorts of things. You need something to tell you that everything is running smoothly on your site, and more importantly, when it's not. You need Pingdom. Pingdom detects around 13 million outages every month. And, you know, if you're quick with math, you've already figured out that's 400,000 outages a day. Pingdom helps keep your sites and the sites you love online. It doesn't matter if you're a startup or Fortune 500 company or, say, a six-year-old podcast network. You need alerts about critical website issues. It lets you customize how you're related depending on the severity of the outage. And you can track and analyze your website's load time. So it's not just about telling you something that goes wrong. You can see incoming information so you can make smart decisions. If you have a site of any size, you need Pingdom. They have a no-fuss approach to getting started because all they need is the URL you want to monitor, and they just take care of the rest. So head on over to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code CONNECTED at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of the show and Relay FM. There is a story going around based on some rumors that the next iPhone will not feature a charger in the box. So I'll put a link in the show notes to an article on The Verge by Deeth Bone and also to a link uh, to a tweet thread from MKBHD. But I want to read uh, Marquez's tweets because uh, he summed up that he basically said there are two sides to this argument. And I think that he, he pitched them both perfectly and it's a good way to get into this conversation. Reaction number one. Is this a joke? $1,000 for a phone and the most necessary accessory is sold separately? Has a phone ever shipped with no charger in the box? This is a new level of greed. Classic Apple about to make a lot of money creating a problem and selling the solution. Right. That is that would be take one and take two. Reaction two is good. Less e-waste scale. Almost everyone has a charger already anyway. If people want a faster wireless charger, they can still get one. Around 300,000 tons of e-waste came from just inbox chargers last year. And that is a statistic taken from uh, Dita Bone's article, I think, um, which is basically saying that, like, there are people that don't need charges who get charges and if you think about the amount of time effort resources uh, that are put into manufacturing and shipping and then being discarded it is a lot of waste so that is the setup to this i would like to ask you both from a top level what do you think about the idea of there being no charger in the box with the next iphone i mean it's kind of awkward right that you buy something and it doesn't come with a charger i do but i do understand the e-waste argument i think that angle makes a lot of sense and i i honestly don't know how to feel about it because it i don't know i just think it's a bit awkward <laughs> having to explain why you buy it and it doesn't have a charger inside but i think it's it's one of those things that if explained well on stage that it's good for the environment and that most people have duplicate and duplicate chargers and that most people actually, like I know that I leave my old chargers in the box 
of each iPhone that I buy every year because I already have my own charger. So yeah, I always leave them in the box. I don't use them. Might as well not put them in there. I just think the principle of it is kind of awkward because they, you know, if you do this, you open yourself up to all kinds of criticism, especially if you're Apple and like a lot of people already have some preconceived notions about the company, like they're greedy and all the stuff costs too much, you know, all the things that people say. So maybe of all companies, like Apple is in the worst position to do this, even though the angle is is right. I think they're going to catch a lot of criticism, just like when they did with the headphone jack. They mm-hmm. were sort of right eventually, but they are, you know, of all companies, they're going to have the toughest time justifying this. Like Samsung could do it. And a lot of people would say, oh yeah, Samsung, great job for the environment. You know, great argument. If Apple does it, they may be right and it could be the right angle, but because it's Apple, they're going to catch a lot of negative press. Because It of will this. be the headline. Charger gate. Uh, and they could be doing like what I believe they did with the headphone jack is like, so we spoke some time ago about a portless iPhone. Maybe that's the next one. Maybe that's 13, maybe that's 14. They get rid of the charger now to for the portless iPhone in the future. But Stephen, what do you think about, about this? How would you feel? I think Federico's right, that even if their heart's in the right place when they do this, they already have their reputation for being stingy, and this is not going to help that. Now, mm. <laughs> it's awesome. Apple's fault that that's their reputation because they have been stingy, right? It's No one put them in that corner. They put themselves in that corner. I was thinking about how do you mitigate that? How do you do this? It's the right thing to do. Maybe it's you have something in the box that's like, hey, we know, talking about e-waste and promoting the recycling program and saying, look, we don't put a power charger in here anymore because of these issues. And, you know, some people, no matter what they do, some people will still lean on the side of Apple's being stingy. But I think there's ways you could get people kind of in the middle on your side. So some sort of messaging, not only in the keynote, but in the box, on the box, saying, look, this is why we've why we've made this change. Uh, there was another rumor that I think I saw last night or today of a soup of the next iPhone box being super thin. And yeah, that's part of this. Right. Because it would take less fuel and plane space, etc., to move these things around the world. Uh, Apple Back, back in the iPod days when they were doing a new iPod you know, refresh every year, several times that came up like, look, the packaging is 42% smaller, so we can put more of them on planes. And they talk about that with you know, MacBook Air boxes and all sorts of stuff. So you also have that to consider as well. They can do this, but they've just got to know, they got to know two things. One, some people are just going to be mad and that's just how it's going to be. But two or B... I don't know if I said one or A. The second point being communicate it somehow to customers who don't pay. Another point. uh, (laughs) Communicate to customers who aren't paying attention to the keynote. Yeah, I think that there is also the possibility of reducing the iPhone price a little, saying that this is why, right, whether it is or it isn't. But they may be able to reduce the iPhone price while still keeping their margins and maybe even increasing their margins if it's cheaper to produce these things, cheaper to ship them, all that kind of stuff. I would, I would go back to the previous argument that Apple is stingy. That uh, <laughs> they're not mm-hmm. gonna. I don't think they're gonna reduce the price of the iPhone because of this. They reduce, but well, okay, but it might not be because of this. They did reduce the price of the iPhone this last time. They did. So 
they could still do that. They could make the iPhone $30 cheaper for a million reasons, but this could be one of them, and they could also say this is the reason, if they want to. They could also and should also make it a part of the buying process to easily add a charger, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, when you buy your iPhone, say, hey... Hey. To be hey, they need to be cheaper. The chargers need to be cheaper if they're going to do this. Chargers, Apple's chargers are way too expensive right now. If they're going to make it a requirement, that crappy slow charger that they put in the box, they need to make it available on the store for a cheaper price than it currently is. Like it needs to be a small cost to people if they're going to do this. Because look, I bet that there is some statistic that tells them the amount of people using those chargers is going down, right? More people were using wireless chargers. More people were using third-party chargers. You know that they know those numbers. And, like, I'm not saying that it's a small percentage of people that are using those chargers, but if 97% of Apple's customers are using the charger that comes in the box, this would be a really silly thing to do because mm-hmm. you would have so many people upset at you, right? So, like, they must... I'm sure they must know that less people are... And there must be a story for it now, right? Like, it makes sense that there is a strong potential that more and more people are using other charging options than the one that comes in the box. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, so many of their customers, it's not their first phone. So many of their customers are using Qi... So many of their customers are using, like, and again, if you are a third-party manufacturer, what a great opportunity for you, right? Oh, Your yeah. Anchor, oh, man. Yeah, it's Christmas for them. Like, so if you sell a cheaper charger than Apple's one, whew, you are going to be rolling in it. Mm-hmm. Talk about the opposite of antitrust, right? Like, <laughs> you are just having the greatest time. So I... Personally, if they are going to do this, I would love what I would love to see them say is like, we're doing it for environmental reasons and the iPhone's going to be a little bit cheaper this year. Mm-hmm. Do I think that they will do both of those things? No. <laughs> but that's what I would like to see. But I don't know if it's the right thing to do because you're inviting the criticism, but it will be way worse if they don't talk about it and then people get that little piece of paper in the box, that's a worse story. I'm almost convinced of that because that has the ability of going viral, right? Like that that has more of, I feel, that kind of ability than if they said up front, like, hey, we're doing this. I think that that could end up being less of a blowback situation. They got to do all of that. They have to tell people as much as they can before they get the phone in their hands, that it's the case. Yeah. Keynote, I love yeah. your idea about having it on the checkout page. You could even have, look, if you want a five watt charger, it's really slow, but it's this much, and then that you can always it's upsell. dollars. Yeah, you can always upsell yeah. to the faster charger. Like I don't use a fifteen watt charger for any or anything anymore. The five watt charger, excuse me. Mm-hmm. I'm all in on faster charging, and I think a lot of people don't even know faster charging is a thing. Like I agree with you that. A lot of people will probably just leave them in the box, but I think they're leaving them in the box because they're using an old 5-watt charger. Yeah. So, yeah, you can tell people, hey, look, if you do this one, it's 30 bucks, but you can charge in half the time. Then you've had an upsell, and Apple loves an upsell. Like, at the moment, a cable is $19, and the 18-watt charger is $29. Yeah, that's way too much, and those Apple cables and chargers are not really great. 
And the five watt charger is nineteen dollars. Yeah, that's no, just no. It's, no, you need you, if you're gonna do this, you gotta make a better option. That's not worth that. That five watt charger is not worth twenty dollars. Even if you offer a one time discount at purchase, right? That you can get the whole thing for fifteen bucks instead of like thirty five. I think that might go a long way as well. And like, if you want to charge people more for extra options, you can go for that. But my favorite meme that I saw about this was everyone was asking Apple for a faster charger put in the box and instead they just take the charger away. (laughs) 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 Which is an incredibly Apple move to do. And we can make that joke because it goes into the idea of them being like, that kind of company they make these decisions and we can call it courage and many people will right bring that old joke back again but i think there are this one this is a story i can get on board with way easier than the headphone jack removal right the headphone jack didn't change the environment (laughs) it wasn't affecting the environment but i can buy that right like i genuinely can buy that they can have whatever reason they want to have for why they do it but if they say it's because we want to reduce this waste like that is like a cause and effect type thing that i will accept personally right other people may or may not but mm-hmm. so like i never really felt like there was a good reason given for why the headphone jack went away but this is a, a like a we've done this why have we done this because we want to uh, be, be we want to continue our commitment to the environment i'll be like okay I don't know what they're going to do. This could be like a little flash in the pan story that got out of hand, or it could be true. But I think the reason that it has gained some steam is because it's very conceivable to imagine that this is going on. Could go on. I think that's it. Yep. If you want to find links to all the stuff we spoke about, head on over to relay.fm slash connected slash 301. While you're there, there's some fun activities you can take uh, part in. If you're not a member, you can become a member and you will get a bunch of cool perks, including Connected Pro, which is an ad-free version of the show each week. It also includes pre- and post-show segments, which are a lot of fun. Check that out. You can join monthly for $5 or an annual membership is $50. You can send us an email with any feedback or follow-up. And of course, you can find us all on Twitter. You can find Mike there as I-M-Y-K-E. You can find Federico there at Vitici, V-I-T-I-C-C-I. You can find me online as ISMH. I think our sponsors this week, Smile, Miro, and Pingdom. Until next week, gentlemen, say goodbye. Arrivederci. Cheerio. Bye, y'all.